Last week, we had a corporate wrestling match. Last week's text was not an easy text. <coughs> the text that we studied last week has been debated by Christians for centuries. There have been gallons of ink spilled by people trying to explain the unpardonable sin, by people trying to explain blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Even in our service review, where men and women of the church come together on a Sunday night, sometimes in my living room, and where we discuss how we can make things better, even then, brothers and sisters weren't quite sure that they had wrapped their, their mind around it. And that's okay, but you know what? Here's some good news. Today's text, it's a lot easier. You're going to have to exert a lot less intellectual elbow grease in order to understand today's text. But, just because today's text isn't that difficult to wrap your heads around, does not mean that it will not challenge you just as much as what we studied last week. What we are going to see today, in many ways, confronts us. It confronts us in our carnal nature. This week we're going to talk about family. While our own culture has grown increasingly cold to the God-given structure of family, many cultures around the world still idolize family. They still exalt it to a status and put it in a position and give it respect and honor that only God deserves. But there are still many Americans in this day that idolatrize family, that they idolize family, many of whom... Many of these people who idolize the family fail to give the proper honor, respect, and dignity that the family of God deserves to that family of God. Such people see no conflict between Christianity and their idolatry of family. Well, our text today is an assault on that misplaced allegiance. As we prepare to read today's text, we would do well to marvel at the simplicity of Jesus' teaching. The simplicity of Jesus' teaching. The way it rearranges our understanding of our identity. The way it rearranges our reality, our allegiances, and ultimately affects the entire way that we live our lives. So let's read it together. Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mothers and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God he is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen. In verses 20 and 21 of Mark chapter 3, we saw Jesus' family going out attempting to seize him. They were saying, he's out of his mind. Perhaps they were trying to rescue him from the crowds. Maybe they recognized the same danger that Jesus himself recognized earlier in the chapter where he felt like his life was in danger from the crowds. Maybe they thought that Jesus was out of his mind because he was rushing headlong into the danger of the masses. Well, again, in today's text, we see Jesus' family approaching him from the outside of the crowd. Verse 31 says, they stood outside. Rather than coming in to gather with everyone else who was seeking Jesus, they chose to stand outside and send someone in to get him. Now, it would be easy to read too much into these verses. Did Jesus' family not come into him because they didn't believe in him? Well, maybe. I mean, it certainly seems likely. If they think that Jesus is out of his mind, they probably don't believe that he's the Messiah, the Son of God. But maybe there just wasn't room. Maybe it would have been too hard to press through the crowd to get to Jesus. Verse 32 says that the crowd was sitting around him. Perhaps it would have simply been rude or distracting for his family to walk through a crowd of seated people and interrupt Jesus in the middle of his lesson. The point is, it would be unwise to plumb these few details 
for what may or may not be spiritual content about the relationship between Jesus' family and Jesus. What is clear and what is obvious and what we should take away from the text is Jesus' response to his family. Jesus' family is beckoning him, drawing him away from the work that he set out to do, the work that he's been commissioned to do by the Father. And as if Jesus, as he's being called by his family, like all good teachers, recognizes a teachable moment. So as this teachable moment goes, Jesus says, there is a family that is in the truest sense imaginable deeper than your flesh and blood family. There is a family in the deepest and truest sense imaginable that is more important, that is more real, that is truer than your flesh and blood family. This is an easy truth for someone like me to accept. Uh, if, you've, if you're a member of the church, you've probably been keeping up with the drama with my father, not father. You probably know my testimony, how I don't have a mom. I mean, I just didn't grow up with a family. No brothers, no sisters. It's not hard for someone like me to hear Jesus say, hey, there's a family that exists that's realer and deeper and truer than your flesh and blood family. For me, I'm like, yes, that's awesome. That doesn't confront me. That comforts me. But maybe that's not the case for you. Maybe you grew up with a really strong family in a really loving household with two parents who loved each other very much and cared for each other deeply. And you saw that all the days of your life growing up. And maybe they loved you very well and cared for you well. Maybe you have brothers and sisters and you guys fight all the time like I saw two young ones fighting this morning in the hallway, a couple of arm punches thrown in for good measure. But you know what? When the, when the going gets tough, when times get hard, you know that your brother loves you. You know that your sister loves you. You've always been there for each other. You know that you're always going to be there for each other. For you, this may be a tough concept to grasp. Now, I'm not saying intellectually this may be a tough concept for you to grasp. Intellectually, you can probably make perfect sense of this. We do that all the time. We can mentally assent, that is, believe it with our heads, in a particular truth without really believing that truth in our hearts. Most of us have had experiences where we know something, that is, we mentally assent to something, we know it to be true, and then we have an experience and that what we know to be true in our minds, the bottom falls out and we know it to be true on a deeper level. Amber and I experienced that. Uh, around 2010, I was leading a small group in a church plant in Atlanta. And we were leading that small group through a theology of suffering. And the whole point of our lesson for several weeks had been, God loves you even in the midst of your suffering. God is doing good in you even through the midst of his suffering. God is using suffering in your life to build you up and to make you more like his son, Jesus Christ. So although it hurts, it is for your good. And then we lost our baby. Amber was pregnant, and uh, we had a miscarriage. And it was so hard. It was so hard. And that's when our theology became real. That's when all the stuff that we knew to be true, up here, mentally, we could say yes and amen to it. I could say it in a Bible study. That's when the bottom fell out for us. And we had to say, Lord, yes, yes, your suffering really is good for us. You really are making us more like your son, Jesus Christ, through suffering. Yes, I understood it before, but now I understand it in a way that I could have never known. That's what I want to happen today with this truth. With the truth from this scripture, I want by the help of the Holy Spirit to help us as a church take this truth from the surface of our minds down to the depths of our souls. And I think the very best way that I can do that is simply by plumbing this truth down to its very dregs. By taking the jewel of this truth and holding it up to the light 
and twisting it so that the light illuminates every single facet of this one same truth. In the army, we used to have implied tasks. Here's, here's how it works. Your sergeant comes and says, Scott, I want you to get a sandbag that's on the top of that roof, and I want you to get it to the motor pool by 5 p.m. Well, that's your task. That's your main task. But the common sense soldier, which is not that common, knows that although you have one task, there are many other tasks that you have to accomplish in order to complete that one main task. If you want to get the sandbag off the roof, you got to get a ladder. That's an implied task. If you want to get that really heavy sandbag safely down from the roof on the ladder, you may need to get help from a buddy. So go in and get a buddy. That's another implied task. Maybe you don't feel like carrying a 70-pound sandbag three miles to the motor pool where you have to drop it off, so now you have to get the company vehicle. That's another implied task, and so on and so on and so on. So you can see how this one main task has several other tasks that are built into it. Well, that's the way I want us to think about the truth from today's scripture. There's one main point. There's one main truth that Jesus is teaching us today. The task, if you will. And that truth is this. Spiritual family trumps family by blood. And you can know your family by the way that they obey the will of God. Spiritual family trumps fleshly, carnal, earthly, genetic family. And the way that you can know who belongs to the family is by the way they obey the will of God. So, that's the main truth. I have 11 implied truths from that one truth that we're going to plumb today, that we're going to dig in and talk about. So if you're a note taker, this is an 11-point sermon. You didn't know that they had that, did you? You thought they were all three-point sermons. Here we go. Point number one. There are some people who are not in the family of God. But we're all children of God, said the young lady that I was sharing the gospel with. Perhaps you've heard that before. But what people mean when they say that is we're all created by God. And to that I say yes and amen. We are all created by God. But just because you were created by God does not mean that you were in the family of God. The family of God does not include every human being. One place where you can see that very easily is in John chapter 8. Jesus tells the religious leaders there in John chapter 8 that their father is the devil. <coughs> Jesus is all about keeping it calm, not saying anything too harsh, too jagged. Your father is Satan, says Jesus. Later in the same gospel, Jesus is clear that not all sheep belong to his flock. He says, these are my sheep, I have other sheep, but they're not of this flock. And this initial yet most obvious truth that we see from today's text is perhaps the most offensive truth to the mind of modern man. The truth that says that not everyone belongs to God is anathema. It's cursed. It can't be true. It's impossible. But the Bible couldn't be clear. Some people belong to Satan. And some people belong to God. And you know that they belong to Satan because they do his will. Later, Again, in John chapter 8, Jesus says that those who do not belong to Christ have Satan as their father, and their will is to do his desire. Their will, which is just another word for desire, their desire is to do their father, Satan's desires. And such were all of us before Christ saved us. The Bible also tells us that we're all by nature children of wrath. The reality that some of us have been adopted by God into God's family should not lead us into pride, but into humility. Why, why does this matter? Because when we tell people that they don't belong to the family of God, when we tell people in, in so many words that their father is Satan and not God, they are not going to like it. Think about you the first time maybe perhaps someone shared the gospel with you before you were a Christian and someone told you that you were a sinner. I'm sure that didn't really make your day. I'm sure you didn't receive it as a compliment. There's nothing palatable about this gospel that tells people 
you are inherently bad. You are inherently sinful. You inherently deserve the wrath of God. We can't make people like that message. But what we can do is communicate that message with the humility of an orphan who's been adopted into God's family. An orphan doesn't make himself part of God's family. He doesn't fight his way into the household and then stand as king of the hill with pride after he's made his way into the household that he's been adopted by. An orphan that's been adopted is humbled by the love that he's received. We can't make people like this truth, but we can communicate it in a way that shows that we've been the recipients of grace. Point number two. The way that we can know that someone is in the family of God is if they obey the will of God. Jesus doesn't just tell the crowd that's gathered around him that some people belong to his eternal family and other people don't. He also tells the people that their family members can actually be recognized. Generally speaking, you can know those who belong to Jesus' family if they're being obedient to Jesus' will. That's not complicated. That's easy math. In verse 32 and 34, we read that the people were sitting around Jesus. It was common practice for rabbis and teachers of the law to have people sit around their feet as they taught. And they were teaching people not just arithmetic and philosophy, they were teaching them the most important things in the world. The most important things that matter. The, the things about God and man and sin and salvation and God's holiness and law. And Jesus looks around at those who are sitting by him, and he says, these are my mother and my brothers. So in saying this, Jesus clues us in to what it looks like to obey the will of Jesus. And I think it's sitting at his feet. It's sitting at Jesus' feet, letting him be the source of all knowledge, wisdom, and truth, and then obeying what we learn from him. The world sits at the feet of everyone but Jesus. And it's obvious in their lack of obedience. The world sits at the feet of entertainers. The world sits at the feet of kings and rulers and governments and dignitaries and revolutionaries. The world sits at the feet of charismatic figures. The world sits at the feet of people who have a whole bunch of degrees with a lot of initials after their name who have spent all their lives in school. The world sits at the feet of whoever has the power at the moment. It sits at the feet of whatever may be most advantageous to them at that particular point in time. The world sits at the feet of idols and false gods and false philosophies that cannot save. Ultimately, the world trusts its own judgment and its own reason. It looks to itself for all the answers to all the most important questions that they have to ask in life. It sits at its own feet in pursuit of knowledge and truth, viewing itself as the own determiner of what's good, right, and true. But those who submit to the will of God sit at Jesus' feet. And they do that, empowered by the Holy Spirit, with Bibles open in front of them, gathered together on Sunday morning, seeking truth together, that God might be glorified. Spurring one another on to good works. In Hebrews, when, when uh, the author of Hebrews tells the people not to neglect gathering together, he says that you might spur one, and on, one another on to good deeds and love. We build each other, uh, each other up in the truth, and then we help encourage each other to live that truth out in the world and in the church. Jesus communicates the will of the Father to his sheep, and the sheep hear his voice. And they obey the Father's will. Point number three. Obedience is not what makes you part of God's family. I cannot say this, I cannot stress this enough. Obedience is not what makes you part of God's family. That is the anti-gospel. Rather, obedience is the DNA test for the family of God. Submission to the will of the Father is not what brings orphans into a family. You have to be brought into the family first before you can begin to obey the father of the family. 
Submission to the will of the Father is what evidence is. It gives proof of the, the new reality, the new spiritual reality that your heart has been made new. Obedience is the DNA test. A dead heart cannot submit to God. A person who does not belong to God's family cannot obey God. From Sunday school this morning, we read Romans 8, 7, which reads, The mind of the flesh is enmity. Enmity, that's not a word that we use. It means fierce rivalry, war. It's set opposed to, in contradiction to. The mind of the flesh is enmity against God, for it does not submit to God's law. For it cannot, says the Apostle Paul. It cannot, it cannot, it cannot. It's unable to, it's not possible. Submission for the, to the will of God is not possible unless the Spirit of God comes in, indwells your heart, and gives you the desire to follow and obey. As Romans 8, 9, just two verses later reads, and you are not in the flesh, you Christians, but you're in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. It is only the Spirit of God dwelling in you that enables you to submit to the Father's will. So when we say that we can know, more or less, whether or not someone is in the family of God, what we mean to say is that we have reason to believe that the Spirit of God indwells that person. And the reason why we have reason to believe that is because we see the Spirit of God leading them to obey the Father's will and not the will of Satan. Back to John 8. Jesus tells the religious leaders that their father is the devil because they want to carry out his evil desires. That's a direct quote. They want to carry out his evil desires. Want. 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 It's not a physical thing. It's a, it's a matter of the will. They want to carry out the desires of Satan. The way that you can know if someone belongs to Satan is when their desires line up with Satan's desires. They want to do the will of their Father. No one's forcing them to do the will of the Father. This morning in Sunday school, we had a question about whether, you know, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Here's the thing. When you belong to Satan, you want to do what Satan does. You want to do it. And when you belong to Christ, when you've been enslaved to Christ, you want to do the will of Christ. You want it. God doesn't force desires on you. He gives you desires, and then you act on the desires of your heart. Obedience is not what makes you a child of God. Rather, it demonstrates the fact that you have been made a child of God. Which leads to our next point, point number four. Church discipline really, really, really matters. There are several reasons why Jesus teaches us that we can more or less identify who belongs to the family of God. One of those reasons is elaborated on by Jesus later on in his ministry in Matthew chapter 16 and 18. And there he teaches his followers how to respond to those who claim to be a part of the family of God, but who are living in such a way that says that they do not belong to the family of God. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells us to confront such a person. First, we confront them one-on-one, -on -one, and then we gather witnesses, and if the brother still doesn't repent after the witnesses have been gathered, then we take it before the church. And if they still don't listen to the church, what do we do? Well, Jesus says, put them out. Later in 1 Corinthians, Paul says the same thing. Put them out from among you. Such an act is loving, and it is kind. It tells the person, I know that you think that you're a member of this family. I know that you think that God is your father. But we have no good reason to believe that. Because it seems like you are being obedient to the will of Satan rather than being obedient to the will of God in heaven. We want you to act like a son or daughter of the Most High. We want to believe you. We want to treat you like family. But for the good of your own soul, we're telling you that you probably are not a member of God's family. Church discipline is not mean. Church discipline was not invented by man. Church discipline was instituted by Jesus as a means of loving individuals, as a means of telling the church and telling the world exactly who is and who is not representing his family. 
Think about it like this. What if someone believed him or herself to be a member of your family? And they put on the family t-shirt, last name Waugh, and they went around and they started acting all kinds of crazy. First thing you would do is you try to find that person and tell them, you're not a member of our family. You'd go to your extended family, like, I don't know who this guy is, but I'm, trust me, he's not a member of our family. And then you'd tell the community where this person is acting crazy, the world, you'd say, he's not a member of my family. I don't know this guy. He claims to be, but he's not. That's what church discipline is. We're telling someone, we're telling the world, and we're telling the church, this person probably does not belong to the family of God. So we need you to take that family t-shirt off. But if you repent, if you start following hard after Christ, if you start living in line with the family values that Jesus gave us as a church, we will happily give you that jersey right back. And we will proudly let you carry our family name on your back. And we will love you and support you and encourage you and be there for you and spur you on to good works and you know, just do everything that we can to show you that, yes, we love you like a member of our family. Point number five. You are not saved into a vacuum-sealed tube that goes from you to God. There's no tube that goes from you directly up to God where you just have this personal relationship isolated from the rest of the world. You are saved into a family. That's why adoption is so beautiful. You're a family, and you take an orphan who has no family, and you bring them in, and you say, now you're a part of this family. Relationship, not religion. Maybe you've heard that. It's pretty common. I know what people mean to say when they use that phrase, but all too often what they mean is, I want to follow Jesus however I think is best. And usually that does not involve participation in a local church. But that's not the way that Jesus talks about following him. The Bible tells us that Jesus loves the church. Jesus loves the church. You are not the apple of Jesus' eye. The church is the apple of Jesus' eye. You are not the most beautiful thing in the world to Jesus. His bride is the most beautiful thing in the world to him. Ephesians 5 tells us that Christ didn't die for us as individuals, but he died to purchase the church. He died for a group of people. And one of the ways that the Bible talks about that is a family. At your baptism, you were not simply baptized into Christ and Christ alone. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says that in the Spirit we were all baptized into one body. That body is the body of Christ, the church. Baptism signifies the fact that you were buried and raised not only with Christ, but also with every other person who has been buried and raised with Christ. The Bible uses many metaphors to refer to the church. There's the temple, the flock, the body. But family is one of the most prominent metaphors in the Bible. But here's the thing, guys. It's not just a metaphor. It's not just a metaphor. Jesus says that this metaphor is also a divine reality. Jesus says, those who obey the will of my Father are part of this family. And that family is more true and more real than the DNA that's coursing through your veins. You have not been adopted into a single child household. You've been adopted into a household that's more like the Duggars at 19 and counting. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And by his grace, we have been made co-heirs with him. One big, happy, holy, for the time being, imperfect family. Point number six. You have a special obligation to your spiritual family. You have a special obligation to your spiritual family. Galatians 6.10 tells us to do good that is to love all men, but especially those of the household of faith. The Bible tells us that our primary locus of responsibility is to our family. You think about it like this in concentric circles. Although God does command me to love everyone and to be generous insofar as it's possible to 
everyone and to care for those who are in need, there's concentric circles of responsibility. If I'm taking care of a homeless person who I just happen to drive by, but I'm not taking care of my wife, I've misunderstood God's command. I need to love my family first and foremost, make sure that they're taken care of, and then I can move out and look to the next person, and the next person, and the next person. In the same way, we as Christians are responsible to do good to all men, as Paul says in Galatians. But he also says that our first responsibility is to our spiritual brothers and sisters, to our family in Christ. Do good to all men, especially the household of faith. Our spiritual family takes priority over strangers and friends and even our physical family. Are you prioritizing your life in this way? Jesus teaches that there's something more important than your human family in general and your relatives in particular, and that's the family of Christ. And I pray that practically your life is reflecting this truth. Now to be clear, a little caveat here, when I say that your church family should be your priority, I don't mean that you should be physically, emotionally, and spiritually failing to provide for your immediate family. Rather, I'm simply making the point that your brothers and sisters in Christ should take priority over your unbelieving mother who lives down the street when it comes to how you prioritize your life. Maybe your unbelieving mother wants you to go shopping with her on a Sunday morning. She's your mother, you love her, you want to honor her. But what about your brothers and sisters in Christ who are committed to gathering with you on a Sunday morning to be edified and to edify you? Waiting to be served by you and wanting to serve you. Waiting to be loved by you and wanting to love you. I think that's the sort of thing that we're talking about. Point number seven. We are closer to our brother or sister in Christ that lives in China than we are to our flesh and blood unbelieving family that lives right here in Decatur, Alabama, or Huntsville, or Florence, or wherever. The most common expression in the Bible for the church is that of the local church. Anytime you see church, I, seven times out of ten it'll be referring to the local church, where people gather together regularly. Well, we are. But the Bible also talks about the universal church. The universal church is composed of believers from all over the world. From Africa to New Zealand, from England to the East Indies, the family of God covers the entirety of the face of the earth. And in light of what we learn about our spiritual family today, you should know that you have brothers and sisters in China who are in the truest sense imaginable more your family than your unbelieving relatives right here in Decatur, Alabama. Now that may be tough to swallow. Jing is a Christian that's imprisoned in the gulags of North Korea. He's tortured. He's worked to the point of malnutrition and he'll probably die there. Jing is more closely related to you. Not just in God's eyes, but really, really, he really is more your family than your unbelieving mom, Wanda, who lives down the street. Jing really is part of our family. He's a real person. He exists. He's out there. And he's my family. One of the reasons that we pray so often here at 6th Avenue for Christians that we don't know and that we've never met is because we believe this. I don't know if you've picked up on it, but in my pastoral prayer, which I know some of you guys are like, yeah, by the way, you want to shorten that up a little bit? Every Sunday we pray for Christians who are suffering and who are being persecuted all over the world. And it's because we believe this. We believe that the Christians in Somalia and Iraq and North Korea and Indonesia and Afghanistan and Iran and in the jungles of South America, we believe that they are part of our family. Now, we don't know these people, but we know that God hears our prayers. We don't know these people, but we know that they are part of our family. We don't know these people, but we know that God knows them and that God loves them. And that's reason enough to pray for them. Point eight. We do not get to choose our spiritual family. We do not get to choose 
our spiritual family. Look around the sanctuary this morning. Really, this is not a rhetorical. I mean, just look around. Just look around. I don't think anyone here this morning would have chosen to make their family look like this. Not that we're not all awesome. But if we were doing things based off of our own preferences, our own foolish, oftentimes sinful way of thinking, our own selfish way of thinking, this would not be what our family looks like. Our family would look like people who look like us and who talk like us and who think like us and who vote like us and who have similar interests as us. But here we are. Some people like sloppy joes, some people like filet mignon. Some people are going to go hunting, you know, later this afternoon, or probably in the morning, right? Some people are going to go do CrossFit. Some people are going to go home and knit. I mean, we could not be more different. These are the people that we're going to be in heaven with. I don't know if everyone here really is converted. But I know that if you are converted, we're going to spend eternity together. We're going to be gathered around the throne of Christ, praising Him together for all of eternity. This is your family. Do you live like that's true? Do you pray for these people? Do you spend time with these other people outside of a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning? Are you intentional to love each other? Are you forgiving one another? Are you bearing with one another? Are you reaching out across the aisle to one another? Do you have the same love for these people that you have for your uncle or your father or your mom? You know, if your father sinned against you and then wanted to have dinner with you a week later, you'd probably do it. But in a church, all it takes is for a person to commit some slight sin against you. And that's enough to the point where rather than answering their phone call, you send it to voicemail. You don't want to go out to lunch with them. You don't want to do breakfast with them. You don't want to serve them when they need to be served. You don't want to help out financially when they need to be helped. One little offense, and you can write someone off in this church like that. Not this church, but the church. And it should not be so. You know that feeling that you get when you're tired? You've had a long week. Many of you are probably experiencing that right now. Your mom calls, and you're like, I love her so much, but I don't want to talk to her right now. And sometimes, you know, the virtue in you wins out. And although you're tired... And although you don't feel like talking to mom, you hit accept. Hey, mom. And you talk. Is that what you would do to a brother or sister in this church? Or would you just send them to voicemail? As is true of your physical family, you don't get to choose your spiritual family. God decided that long before you were ever born. In the same way that your parents didn't ask you if you wanted a new little brother or sister... God did not ask you if you wanted to be in heaven with the people that you're going to be in heaven with. You don't get to choose your family, but you know what you get to do? You get to love them. You get to love them. Jesus told us that the world would know us by our love for one another. It's not hard for us to love people who raised us or people who look like us and talk like us, but sometimes it's really really hard to love other Christians. I mean, it's really hard. I know that some of us are having a hard time loving each other in this church. I know that. I know that it's not easy for people who are so different, who have such different experiences to come together and to love one another. But we're commanded to do it. And we have the privilege to do it. Like it or not, we are family. And at 6th Avenue, we can be the kind of family that dishonors our parents by the way we treat our siblings, or we can be the kind of family that gives glory and honor to the Father by the way we love one another. I pray that the Lord would give us the grace to do the latter. Point number nine. Racism is utterly unacceptable in the church. And it is deeply out of line with the spiritual realities of the gospel. If you are a racist, that is, if you think that you're superior to someone because of your skin color or your ethnicity or your country of origin, you have deeply misunderstood the gospel. I don't care if you're black or white 
or Mexican or Asian, if you think that your race is the right race, you do not understand the gospel. The very end of the gospel, the thing that the gospel is pointing to in the book of Revelation says that we as a body will be composed of people from all tongues, all tribes, all nations. All tongues, so no only, no English only. All tribes, so no ethnic background. All nations, so no country specific. Every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. And racism flies directly in the face of such realities. Whether you like it or not, if you're a Christian, and I don't know why you wouldn't like it, but as a Christian, you should know that you will be in heaven with black people. And you will be in heaven with brown people. And you will be in heaven with yellow people. And you will be in heaven with white people. And with every hue in between. I think sometimes Christians fail to realize that their Savior was a Middle Eastern Jew who did not speak English, but spoke Aramaic and Hebrew and likely Greek. What a sad thing it is to see a person who calls himself a Christian identify his brother or sister based off of the color of their skin rather than the fact that they're washed in the red blood of Jesus Christ. It should not be so. And it will not exist in this church as long as I'm pastor. There's recently marches in Charlottesville. Uh... I'm not going to comment about whether or not it's right to leave up a statue of Robert E. Lee or to take down a statue of Robert E. Lee. But I'll tell you what's not right. I saw people walking in that march carrying a Nazi flag in one hand and a Christian flag in the other. Such a person is not saved. Such a person is not a Christian. Some per such a person does not understand the gospel. We can never claim racial superiority in one hand and the kingdom of Christ in another hand. The family of God is composed of orphans from every nation. And no child of God can look at another orphan and say, you don't belong in this family because of your skin color. The only thing that keeps us out of the family of God is our sin. And the good news is that Jesus Christ paid the red price for that. Point number 10. We should build our lives around the church not simply tack church on to the rest of our lives. We should build our lives around the church, not simply tack church on to the rest of our lives. This truth says that our spiritual family means more to us than our regular family, and that affects the way that we live our lives. We already know this to be true in some sense, right? If your earthly father commands you, you are required by God to obey and honor your earthly father, Unless your earthly father commands you to do something that's sinful, then you are free to disobey your earthly father, right? So in one sense, we already know that there's a spiritual priority over our earthly fathers and mothers. Our first allegiance is not to a physical family, but to our spiritual family, and our lives should reflect that. I remember having a conversation with a, a couple, some friends of ours, we were on the mission field together. They were trying to decide whether or not to have their baby on the mission field. To me, the answer seemed obvious. You're missionaries. You live here. You got to have your baby here, of course. Why would you do anything else? They, they agreed. They, they appreciated my impulse, but they said that their parents would have really wanted to witness the birth of their child. And that that was the major consideration. I was blown away. Not having grown up with parents or a good family, it never even crossed my mind that they should consider doing that which would honor their family. Whoa. Perhaps you've not had a good relationship with the church. Like me, you just don't understand the depth of the spiritual realities of this body called the church. Perhaps you've never considered that the church should be the thing that all the other things in your life are built around. But if you pause and you consider this, this idea and you consider it through a gospel lens, it makes perfect sense. The way you live your life, the way you prioritize your time, the way you spend money, they all speak to that which you value. And as a Christian, that which you value should be the thing that God values, that Christ values. 
And what does Christ value more than anything in the world? His bride. The church. There's a guy on Facebook recently who announced that he's going to start having meetings in flip-flops, which I don't care about flip-flops, in his backyard to talk about Jesus rather than going to church. I wrote him a note. I know the brother. I think he's a Christian. I said, brother, I'm sure you've been hurt by the church, and I'm sorry for that. I know what it's like. I, too, have been hurt by the church. But Christ doesn't give up on his bride, and I want to encourage you not to give up on her either. How do you spend your time? That communicates what you love. How do you spend your money? That communicates what you love. What about the job you have? If you choose a job that never allows you to gather with your brothers and sisters in Christ, how much do you really love your brothers and sisters in Christ? I know a guy who refused an amazing job because although he's going to make all the money and have all the benefits and have all the prestige, he was never going to get to see his girlfriend, his fiancée, that he was going to marry. I thought, wow, what, a, what an incredible testimony to the thing that he values most in his life. And yet we as Christians, we oftentimes do the exact opposite. We act as if money doesn't come and go all the time. As if jobs aren't here today and gone tomorrow. As if we can't find something else to do to make a little bit of money. And so we take jobs and we pursue money and we pursue life goals totally without considering the church. It doesn't matter if I come on Sunday. It doesn't matter if I come on Wednesday. It should not be so. Some of our activities, our schedules are so full of activities that we, we fit church in wherever we can find space in our already really busy, occupied lives. It should be the exact opposite of that. As you're sitting down with a blank sheet and you're writing out your schedule, you should be putting in Sunday morning where God has commanded me to come together and love and serve and to be loved and to be served by my brothers and sisters in Christ. And then I'll, I'll, I'll build everything else around that. I'm going to make sure that I spend time with my family. If you've ever talked with someone who has a hard time saving, one of the best pieces of advice that you give to someone who can't save money is, you have to put the money away first. When you get that check, if you want to save $100 every check, you take that $100 and you put it in a place where you can't touch it before you do anything else. Because you know what? There's always going to be a reason for you to not save that money. There's always going to be another expense, another bill, another reason to spend a little splurge, a little I'm going to treat myself, whatever. And then the money that you were going to save is gone. As we're organizing our lives, we should just put church, the body of Christ, my family, that's the first priority. I'll worry about soccer practice later. I'll figure out how I'm going to get a workout in later. I'll worry about my recreational activities later. I'll go visit my cousin some other time. But this Sunday morning is sacred. Last point. And this is probably the most obvious point. I'm thankful for Will on this one. If you are a Christian, you have God as your Father. And you are part of a heavenly family. Just, just that, that, what I just said, you have God as your Father, it, it probably just... It just hits you and bounced off. It's like water off a duck's back. It, it probably just, just blew right past you. God is your Father. God is your Father. The one who put the stars in their place and knows all trillions of them by name he is your father. The one who designed the double helix DNA structure that carries on the information for all human beings everywhere, he is your father. The one who spoke and by the power of his word brought the entire universe with galaxies and quasars into existence, he's your father. The one who exists both in and outside of time, the creator of time itself, he is your father. The perfect holy, perfectly just, perfectly loving, perfectly omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, totally sovereign God of the universe, 
He is your Father. The one who raises kings and lays entire empires to waste. He is your Father. The one who causes the sun to stand still in the sky is your Father. The great I Am is your Father. The King of kings, the Lord of lords is your Father. The Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and was and will be, is your Father. The one through whom are all things and to whom are all things and for whom are all things is your Father. The most gloriously beautiful and magnificent being in all the universe who deserves every ounce of glory and honor is your Father. The one who will one day make all things right and eradicate sin and fix this broken world full of cancer and pain and anguish. He is your Father. And He is going to take you with all the rest of His children to His eternal mansion to dwell in the pleasure, pleasure of His delight in the face of His Son, Jesus Christ, forever. And it will never end. Don't let that bounce off of you. Don't let that go in one ear and out the other. God is your Father. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I need you to know that God is not your Father. You do not belong to God's family. You will not inherit God's kingdom or his house. The only thing that awaits you is God's judgment. But God the Father is kind. And he knew that you could not satisfy his righteous requirements. He knew you were going to be the rebellious son or daughter that you have most certainly been. And so he sent his son his perfect son, his only son, Jesus Christ. And he lived a perfect life, perfectly obeying the will of the Father. And out of love for you, he gave his life. He was a son, and he became an alien, a stranger, an outsider. He was kicked out of the house of God on the cross, suffering the wrath of God, so that you could be brought into the family of God so that you could be called a son and daughter of God, so that you could be adopted into God's eternal family. And he's calling you today. Stop running. Stop rebelling. Turn to God the Father. Receive him. He is good and he loves you and he will care for you and he will give you more than you could ever imagine. Because he is a good father. Let's pray.